We are continuing our series on uh, the letter to Philemon, and what we've been doing is we've literally been going verse by verse through um, this short letter. It's kind of fun. Um, it's incredible to me, and it strikes me each time uh, we come to this space, is we read a letter like Philemon, and we know virtually nothing about the two main characters in the letter. Uh, we know that there's got this guy named Philemon, he's a, he owns slaves, and there's a conflict with one of his slaves named Onesimus, and that's pretty much it. It's kind of interesting. And yet, despite that, this letter has so much to do with our lives 2,000 years later. It's amazing. It's, it's a gift of God in so many ways. You know, um, sometimes... I think we fall into the belief that as we move on and we march on through history, that um, we're getting better and we've learned from our mistakes and, and you know, we're, we're higher-minded than we were a hundred years ago, maybe even more than a decade ago, right? Like we're figuring life out at a greater level than we ever have before. And I think this letter to Philemon, as it interacts with our lives, it proves to us, well, maybe that's just not true, I think. Oh, it reminds me of King Solomon. He wrote in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's Ecclesiastes 1.9. He said, um, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. I think this just affirms, this letter affirms that as well. Um, one of the primary reasons uh, this letter speaks to us in the way that it does is because it demonstrates a core piece of what faith in Jesus looks like um, in a pretty remarkable way. And that is that when, when we come to faith in Jesus, um, it really turns our lives upside down, much like that video that we just saw. Everything in ways turn upside down. Things that at one point in our lives seemed right, they seemed true, uh, we meet Jesus and suddenly they can't be anymore. Those things can't be right anymore. Or there's those things where wisdom tells us that this is the wise thing to do in our lives and then we meet Jesus. And then suddenly that thing that once seemed wise, well, it suddenly doesn't anymore. It might even seem foolish to us and vice versa. And, uh, you know, uh, Matthew 16, 25, this is Jesus talking. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it, which is a great picture of this upside down gospel thing that we are getting at. And so this morning, what we're doing is we're continuing on in our series of the, uh, st uh, basically we're studying the letter of Philemon. Um, for those of you that are like, well, I don't really remember all the details. The letter to Philemon, here's a quick recap, um, was written by the Apostle Paul who was likely imprisoned in Rome at the time. And the letter was written to um, a wealthy slave owner named Philemon. And the topic of the letter um, was one of Philemon's slaves. His name was Onesimus. And Philemon and Onesimus had a falling out of sorts. And Onesimus, the slave, he went on a run and he ran to Rome to escape his slavery. And he ended up finding the apostle Paul and staying with Paul. And while he was with Paul, Paul preached the good news to him, and Onesimus, the slave, became a follower of Jesus. And then Paul and Onesimus, at some point, decide it's best for Onesimus to go 
home to go back to his master Philemon. And Paul writes a letter. And the letter he writes, um, Onesimus is to carry with him and hand it to Philemon when Onesimus gets home. And the letter is really Paul trying to persuade Philemon to accept Onesimus back. No strings attached. Perhaps Philemon even was to uh, accept Onesimus back as, as not just a, a free man or something, but as a brother in Christ, Paul puts it. And so now the first week, three weeks, I guess it would be three weeks ago today or two weeks ago today, um, we went through verses one through seven. And really the point of verses one through seven was Paul kind of using his tricks of persuasion to try to convince Philemon to change his mind. And then last week we went through uh, verses eight through 11, where Paul finally names the problem in the letter and he, uh, he talks about Onesimus um, particularly. And then this week we're going to take a crack uh, at verses 12 through 16, um, which I would say is, it's kind of the heart of the letter to Philemon. And so that is going to be our scripture reading this morning. Our scripture reading is Philemon verses 12 through 16. If you have a Bible with you, you'd like to turn there, that'd be a great time to do so. Um, if you have one of the worship center copies, the page number is 967, which will help. If you don't have one of those and you have your, your own Bible, it, Philemon is found right after Titus and right before the book of Hebrews, if you want to turn there as well. And so our uh, scripture reader this morning is Marvin Barnes. Marvin, you can head on up. And what we do here when Scripture is read is we stand and we face the center of the room where the Scripture is read. Um, scripture is primal for us. It is the story of Jesus. It is a true story. So Marvin, when you are ready, take it away. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to kept him with me so that he could take, care, take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem to be forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Thank you, Marvin. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to start, um, before we dive into our verses, I want to start with a story to set things up. When I was um, 10, 11 years old, I gained the responsibility in the family of mowing the lawn and I hated mowing the lawn. It took an hour and a half every week, and I had to do that every single week. And I hated mowing the lawn for two reasons. One, our lawnmower was a relic. I think you could find it like in the ancient pyramids or something like that. It was old, and the blade was dull. And so when you'd push the mower over the grass, it would only clip about half the grass, and you'd have to go back and do it again. Number two, and maybe more importantly, was I have this thing called hay fever, and fresh cut grass doesn't work for me. And so I'd push for an hour and a half, sneezing and wheezing and runny nose. It was really magical, I promise you. Now, <clears throat> there was one thing about mowing the lawn that I loved, 
is I got to go to the gas station, which was just a couple blocks away, and my job was to fill up the gas can. And every time I would do that, my dad would give me a dollar extra, and I could get a candy bar, which was a big deal for me. It still is, for the record. Um, looking back, though, that's all I got paid was that candy bar for my lunch. So I don't know if it was a good deal. I think it was for my dad. Anyway, on one such occasion, I'm at this gas station a couple blocks away, and I have the gas can, and I set it down, and then I go and I grab uh, the pump, and I go to put the pump nozzle into the gas can, and it won't fit in the gas can, which I think is kind of weird. Um, and so I strategically fill up this gas can the best I can, maybe making a little bit of a mess. I put the, the gas pump back, and then I walk inside to pay. The owners of this gas station were um, from India, and they had really thick accents. And as I walked in, the cashier, I think it was the dad or something, with a very concerned face was trying to say something to me, and I had no idea what it was. So I was just, okay, yeah, I'm going to pay and leave now. And then I did, as an 11-year-old, and I went home. And I put the gas into the lawnmower, and I started the lawnmower, and it started, and then it started making weird noises, and then it stopped. Any idea why that was? That's correct, it was diesel. My dad was thrilled. The good news was we got a new lawnmower out of it, which was awesome. Story's not done yet. On one such occasion, I went to mow the lawn with a new lawnmower. And wouldn't you know, we were out of gas. And so I walked over to the gas station and I set the gas can down and I took the nozzle and I went to put it in the gas can. And wouldn't you know, it didn't fit again. That's interesting. I still filled it up the best I could, maybe made a mess, walked into the gas station and the Indian guy was like, no, 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 no. Like, you don't want to do this. It's not a good idea. And I couldn't understand what he was saying and I went home and I put the gas in the new lawnmower and I started the new lawnmower and it started and then it stalled, and I couldn't get it started. Can you guess what happened this time? I'm assuming I'm the only one that's made that mistake. Um, I'm assuming I'm probably the only one that has made that mistake twice as well, too. Um, when I make mistakes, I make them um, in a plurality. I like to make the same mistake again and again and again. Um, I call it a spiritual gift. I don't know what my wife thinks. It is a part of life to make mistakes, right? We all do. We all make mistakes. Um, we make decisions that when we look in retrospect, it's like, wow, that was not a good idea. That was a bad idea. Like putting diesel in the lawnmower or a number of other things that we might do. And there's this moment when we're not the one making the mistake and we're watching the other person make the mistake. Sometimes we do so joyfully. I don't know about you. Like, this is going to be great. I can't wait to watch this. Um, but there's other times where someone's making a mistake and you are left scratching your head and you're saying, what in the world was this person thinking? Have you ever had a moment like that? Perhaps as a father or mother, you've had several of those moments. I don't know. You see, our scripture reading this morning out of Philemon is one of those moments in scripture where you open up and you read. And if you read closely enough, you start to scratch your head and say, what in the world was Paul and Onesimus thinking? They are making a bad mistake. They are doing a mistake that looks something like putting diesel in the lawnmower multiple times. Like it seems like a bad 
idea. And we read about that in the first verse of our scripture reading this morning. If you have your Bible, open up to verse 12. It's a short verse. This is what verse 12 says. This is Paul. He says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. That's the whole verse. That's it. Short and sweet and to the point. Now, when we read that verse initially, we might think that nothing significant really is going on in this verse. It's just a a verse. It's great. Whatever. Um, You may read it and you say, well, it's kind of got romantic language to it. Like, wow, my very heart. That's, you know, it's Valentine's Day-ish. That's nice. I like it. Maybe it's kind of a romantic passage. Wrong. It's not. It's not a romantic passage. If you were to fill in the blanks on this passage, it would read something like this. Paul would say, I am sending Onesimus the slave, who is my very heart, back to you, Philemon, the slave master. And you see, to me, that just doesn't make any sense for Christians to do basically Ever. I am sending Onesimus the slave who is my very heart back to you, Philemon the slave master. That doesn't make sense because slavery is bad, right? Like we've talked about this. Slavery is not a good concept. It's not the way that God wants his world to work. And then Onesimus, he manages to escape his slavery and he runs off and he finds himself in Rome, right? And that's Great. He won, right? He's the winner. He finally got out of a really bad situation. We root for Onesimus in this moment. And then he meets Paul, and then there's got to be this awkward situation where Paul's sitting there, and he's like, hey, uh, Oni, which I'm assuming is his nickname. Hey, Oni, uh, I think you need to go back to your slave master. And that's not the surprising part. The surprising part has to be what Onesimus says, right? He must have said okay, yeah, that makes sense. I'll go back into slavery. Let's do it. You know, like, let's do this. It doesn't make sense. In fact, to make things more confusing, in verse 12, Paul uses an interesting phrase. He says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. The who is my very heart is actually one word in Greek. It's one word. It's a very specific word in Greek, a very specific, um, Paul chose it for a reason kind of word, and it's also a really fun word to say. I'm telling you, it's great. The word is splanknon. It's awesome. You should try it. Come on. Yeah, it makes you feel good, doesn't it, when you say a weird word like that. Splanknon. It sounds to me like a German word or something, like Splanknon. I don't know. Like, I don't know how the Germans would say it. I also think it could be a word that Sean Connery would say, and it would be amazing if he said it. I don't know. Splanknon. I don't know. And (laughs) Splanknon in Greek means something being so close to something else that the two become indistinguishable from each other. You hear that? Splanknon is, it's a relational word. That one person becomes so close to another person that you can almost not um, see them being different people anymore. They've almost become one in a sense. It's, it's actually a value word. 
meaning that someone else has value to you. That's when you'd use the word splanknon. Like um, this music stand here, which um, Chuck and I, we adore this thing. She's, she's a great music stand. Um, this music stand is splanknon. Like it's, it's a part of me and I'm a part of it, right? Like I can't walk away from this. That would be terrible. You know, like splanknon. It's kind of silly, but it gets at the point. And Paul says that Onesimus is splanknon to him. That Onesimus is incredibly valuable to Paul. Yet, Paul, who supposedly values Onesimus, tells Onesimus to get lost and go home. Go back to your slavery. It, it, it doesn't seem to make any sense. And this brings up questions for me, and perhaps it brings up questions for you too, but why would Paul and Onesimus agree that Onesimus should go back home? Why? Why in the world would they think that's a good idea? Why would it be a good idea that Onesimus return to an incredibly unjust situation? Why? It just doesn't make sense. Now, I think to understand this, I, I want us to think about something else for a minute, um, something ancient um, that people have talked about for a long time, really, until recently. It's the word virtue. Virtue. We've all heard that word before. I think what Paul is doing here is he is demonstrating virtue to Philemon. And virtue, if you're like, well, what exactly does virtue mean? Virtue is what happens when a person acts out a behavior or an action that reflects one's values or beliefs. Does that make sense? Like, imagine that we're at the grocery store and we're hanging out and, we're, you know, we're in the produce aisle, like getting dragon fruit or whatever cool stuff, right? We're walking and the person in front of us drops a $100 bill on the ground, right? And has no idea they dropped it. We have an, a couple options in this situation, right? One, we could just simply ignore it and keep walking and leave the $100 on the ground, which is probably a bad idea. And then we have a couple other options. One, we could pick it up, bend down, grab it, um, slowly put it in our pocket, and then head back off shopping, and we get a $100 discount, right? We could do that if we wanted to. The other option is we bend down, we grab that $100 bill, we tap that person on the shoulder and say, hey, um, excuse me, I believe that you dropped this. And, and by choosing that second one, the, oh, I believe you dropped this choice, that would be us acting out virtue in a sense. Because most of us, I think, believe in honesty and integrity. That's something we believe in and we expect out of other people. And when we act out by saying, hey, here's the $100 back, we are acting out integrity and truthfulness. We are being virtuous in a sense. In other words, virtue, in essence, is practicing what we preach, if that makes sense. And you see, virtue 
has been one of the most talked about topics by the church for thousands of years. And that is because it's one thing to believe all the right things. We can check the box of beliefs and we can, we can nail that one, right? Like that's not that hard to do. It's an entirely other thing for those beliefs to actually sync up to the way we live our life and the choices that we make. And we know this, right? We know this. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody who you look up to, um, they are like a leader to you, uh, they're a mentor type figure for you, that person suddenly does something incredibly unethical or immoral? Like, what does that do to you, right? It bothers us, I think, right? It bothers us. Because we suddenly see a difference between what this person believes and how this person lives, and we can't handle that. There's something wrong with that. You know, it's, it's why, actually, there are many, many, many people walking away from church in the United States today. And as they walk out the back doors, they all say something similar, right? They say that Christians are hypocrites, right? We've heard that on the news. We've heard that everywhere. Christians are hypocrites. And what they mean by that is you Christians, so say these people, you say you believe all these things, and then I look at how you live, and they're not matching up. There's something wrong. And so they leave. It's why Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites so many times. There was a dissonance between belief and between action. And you see, virtue is incredibly important in our lives and for our faith. It's like that Greek word that Paul uses, splanknon. When we can't tell the difference between what we believe and how we live our lives, that's the sweet spot in our lives when everything lines up perfectly. And you see, what our scripture reading bears out this morning is Paul's virtue, in a sense. You could even say Onesimus's virtue. Um, if you have your Bible, turn with me to verses 12 through 14. I want to read them for us a second as well. This is what it says. Um, I am sending him who is my very heart, Splanknon, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. See, what Paul's doing here is he's talking about his values and what he values. And in particular in this passage, Paul is saying he values Onesimus. Onesimus means something personally to him. Onesimus, the runaway slave. That Onesimus is a person that holds value. And Paul uses um, a specific word when he talks about Onesimus. And it's in verse 13. You can see it in your Bible. He uses the word helping. And the word helping is almost the same word we use for um, deacons here at TFRC. Um, uh, deacons, a diaconus, uh, helping. It's the same word. Onesimus has been tending to Paul like deacons tend to the church, providing food for Paul and other basic needs for Paul and taking care of Paul's health and finances and things like that. And Paul has found great worth in what Onesimus has done. He has been a great helper. He is valuable to Paul. 
And you see, Paul talks about Onesimus' value for a reason. Because Paul wants Philemon, the slave owner, to see Onesimus is valuable too. That's really the goal here. That's what Paul's doing. Literally, what Paul is doing is sharing with Philemon, the slave owner, his virtue of worth toward Onesimus. That's what he's doing. And Paul is willing to write out a letter and send it to Philemon and ink his name on that letter to share and to do something about how he really feels and believes in Onesimus. And then we get to verse 14. So what verse 14 says. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. You see, Paul is sharing with Philemon, hey, Onesimus is valuable. I think he's valuable. Look at all the ways that Onesimus is valuable. However, Paul, um, he has a strategy here. And the big chunk of his strategy is this, that Paul wants to model virtue rather than enforce virtue. Paul desperately wants Philemon to see how valuable Onesimus the slave is personally and practically in life. And Paul does not want to enforce that on Philemon. He wants Philemon to voluntarily come to that conclusion himself. You see, sometimes the best way to correct a wrong is when the person who is committing that wrong comes to the conclusion themselves that they're committing a wrong, and that person decides to do something about it. That is best case scenario fixing a conflict. Um, it's literally the premise of addiction recovery. If you've been a part of that at all, you understand this, right? Um, in addiction recovery, you can try to strong arm someone into becoming clean and to giving up whatever substance they're addicted to. You can throw them in prison. We can do all sorts of things to try to force them to be clean. And then as soon as they get free, what happens? They turn back to it. And it's only, and every clean addict will tell you this, it's only when they come to the conclusion themselves that there's a problem will they ever begin to fix the problem. And it's true for Philemon, the slave owner, too. And then in the last two verses of our scripture reading, it's verses um, 15 and 16. This is what he says, if you can read along in your Bible. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, he is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. And it's here that Paul kind of makes his final plea to Philemon. He doesn't force him any, into anything. He's just building an argument saying, can you buy this? Can you buy this, Philemon? Can you believe this? And he actually adds something to this argument as well. He says something specific he says that, yes, Onesimus, the slave, he's, he's worthwhile. He does really good work. He's a loyal dude. He's a good guy. But there's more going on here with Onesimus. And the more that's going on here is Onesimus is a brother in Christ. And that means something. That means something, Philemon. See, Paul is not enforcing 
but inviting Philemon to see Onesimus with new eyes. And those new eyes are, in some sense, the gospel of Jesus. That in Christ, all people are valuable to God. All people are. No matter what their status may be, all people matter to God, and thus they should matter to us too. Whether you have a lot of money or you are negative, right? Like your bank account is red. You are valuable to God. Whether you're in some kind of slavery in society or or whether you are a freed person, you matter to God. You matter to the church. Whether you have black skin or brown skin or white skin, you you are valuable. You matter to God. You matter to the church. It's how it works. And Philemon, the only way he can come to understand this, I think, is through practice. He's got to have an opportunity to practice. Virtue, the only way that we gain virtue is through practice. It's not a mind game. It's what we do. And I think that's what Paul is trying to do. Now, what's amazing to me about this story is how incredibly risky this move of sending Onesimus home had to have been. It was risky to Paul, in a sense. It was way more risky to Onesimus. Yet they did it. They went for it because they wanted to see Philemon's eyes changed. That's what they wanted to see. I mean, as soon as Onesimus would have shown up letter in hand and then knocked on the door and Philemon opens the door, Philemon had options. He could have beat his slave. He could have hurt Onesimus. He actually could have killed Onesimus and it would all have been legal. I mean, it is a huge risk on their behalf. Yet, Onesimus and Paul thought it was worthwhile. And they thought it was worthwhile for a reason. You see, Paul and Onesimus could take a risk like that because they truly understood something about the gospel. They, they really understood the good news in a way that perhaps sometimes we don't today. You see, in our world, when we find ourselves in a bad situation or a difficult situation or an unjust situation, our instinct, I think, is to push against that, right? We're supposed to fight to either defeat that situation or we're supposed to flee from that situation, right? Like we're either get out or we're going to like win this thing. Like that's what we're supposed to do. We should fight back. We should push hard. We should try to come out on top when there's a conflict, right? Or, Or if we can't, we need to beat it and get out of there, right? Like that's what we're supposed to do. Every culture in the history of the world has been filled with people that feel the need to fight back. There's something about it in us. We want to fight back. We want to win, in a sense. The, the mantra for humanity forever, I think, has been self-preservation first, right? Like, protect ourselves first in any way we can. Whether that's fighting or running, we need to protect ourselves to keep our hands away from the hot stove, in a sense, right? The hot stoves of life, to stand up to the bully or whatever it may be. But you see, for Christians, 
the gospel turns all of this upside down. All of it. You know, for humanity, forever, the way to win in the world has always been self-preservation. Always. It always has. Defend ourselves. Fight back. Whatever it may be. Win the battle, right? But the way to win for Jesus is literally upside down from that. It's upside down. The way to win for Jesus is not self-preservation, defending ourselves, but it's self-denial. It's giving up ourselves, in a sense. It, it's the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, the one that Jesus gave, where he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek ones. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. Blessed are those who show mercy, perhaps even when they shouldn't show mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the persecuted. Those are the blessed. You see, sometimes God calls us to go back into the storms of life and to take one for the team because sometimes that's the only way the good news might come from it. Sometimes it's the only way. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their what? Their cross and follow me. I, I would argue that is the ultimate virtue of Jesus. It's taking up the cross. Maybe you're in a season where there's relational conflict going on and maybe it's real heated. Maybe it's bad. Maybe you feel really wounded by somebody. Maybe it's family or friends or a coworker or whatever it may be. And, and maybe in that situation, we just want to be the winners, right? We want to be the good guys in this situation. We want them to be the bad guys, right? And so we do our best to be the winner, right? We're going to get them to apologize. That's how this baby's going to go down, right? Like that's what we maybe want. Everything in us wants to win. What if we practice the virtue of Jesus like Onesimus did? What if we went into our conflict and we just assumed that we were going to lose? And we did. What if we denied ourselves for the other person? What would that be like? What if we chose to see the person that we're in conflict with as a splanknon, right? A part of us. What if we did that? Maybe in that situation, good news would come out of it. Maybe. And you see, that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. It's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus denied himself on the cross. He became the bad guy, even though he knew he wasn't on the cross. Denied himself for us, for our gain, who are probably the bad guys, right? Probably the bad guys. That's good news. Maybe in the conflicts of our lives, we need to be a little bit more of that and it will be good news. Maybe. Let's pray.
Jesus, we remember what you did at the cross this morning, God. We remember that you went to a cross, you were brutalized beforehand, you were nailed to the cross, you were bloodied on the cross, and you did it as the good guy. You lost. And you did it because of love, because you love us, God. We thank you for that good news this morning. We truly do, God. We thank you that that's the example you gave. And we recognize that in our own lives, to bear our cross is hard. It's really hard. When we lose, it hurts. God, give us power to lose so that your good news might reign in all of our lives. Give us your set of virtues. Make us into that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me leave you with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord raise his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen, church.